This episode is dedicated to Louis E., Karen L., Louis C., Dante G., and Yauka C. for the donations they made to the podcast. You probably remember Louis E., because this isn't his first donation. He has given for the past three years, and thus has won the Water Buffalo Icon and the Shui Dagon Pagoda Icon on the Podcast Hall of Fame page. Now that he has given again, veteran listeners will know what that means. Lewis has just won the highest honor created previously, the outrageous Merlion Icon. Karen is a first-time donor, so welcome to our happy family. As for Lewis C. and Yauka C., what can I say? They have made donations in every year since 2019, and they already have the three icons I created for multiple donations. Therefore, I am creating a new icon just for them. I will tell you about it at the end of this episode. Finally, this is the second time Dante made a donation this year, so let's all applaud him again. Spring is beginning in the Northern Hemisphere as I record this, and a lot of new things begin with spring. So may this new season be the beginning of a great time of success and prosperity for all of you. And now, on with the show! Hello, you have found the History of Southeast Asia podcast. I am your host, Charles Kimball. Episode 126, Lombok and the Volcano Greetings, dear listeners, for the 126th time, from the hills of bluegrass country in Kentucky and new events continue to happen while I work on the podcast. On February 9th, 2023, a 5.4 magnitude earthquake struck the city of Jayapura in eastern Indonesia. Jayapura is the most important city in western New Guinea, and it is right on the border of Papua New Guinea. Go back to episode 102, if you want to learn more about Western New Guinea. Several houses and buildings were destroyed, and four people were killed when a floating restaurant collapsed into the sea. Fortunately, the earthquake did not generate a tsunami. For those who didn't know already, Indonesia is an earthquake-prone country. Its location next to the geologic fault separating Asia from Australia, puts it on the famous Pacific Ring of Fire, meaning there are plenty of volcanoes here. And where you have volcanoes, you have earthquakes as well. 
and this earthquake was expected. The Meteorology, Climatology, and Geophysics Agency said it recorded 1,079 earthquakes in Jayapura and nearby areas during the first six weeks of 2023, with 132 of them strong enough to be felt by residents. Almost three months earlier, on November 21st, a magnitude 5.6 earthquake killed at least 331 people in western Java. And you may remember in the previous episode, I told you about a major earthquake on Sulawesi in 2018. Then on February 24th, a 6.2 magnitude earthquake occurred north of Halmahera, an island we will visit in a future episode. It originated at a depth of 99 kilometers, or 62 miles for American listeners, and it did not generate a tsunami. So far, I have not heard of any casualties from this one. And here is an event relevant to this episode. On March 11th, Mount Merapi, a volcano located in eastern Java, erupted, sending a column of hot clouds 100 meters into the air that blotted out the sun and dropping ash on eight nearby villages. I have mentioned this volcano in the podcast before. Since the ancient Borobudur temple is close enough to be affected by the eruptions. Merapi's last big eruption was in 2010. It killed more than 300 people and forced the evacuation of some 280,000 residents. Now for a happy news story. In mid-February, there was a wedding held in the Philippines at Iloilo City in the Central Islands. And they did something different. Instead of having the bride and bridesmaids carry the usual flower bouquets, they carried bouquets of red onions. In recent months, the price of onions in the Philippines has gone up tremendously. Now onions cost seven times what they did in mid-2022. The price can run more than $5 a pound in U.S. dollars. So they are expensive, even by American standards. And in the Philippines, onions have become a symbol of wealth. Now that onions cost more than chicken or beef, they have been nicknamed the New Gold. Here in the United States, eggs have gotten ridiculously expensive. So my American listeners can compare Philippine onions to American eggs. And if you have ever eaten Philippine cuisine, you know that onions are a critical ingredient. Anyway, the families involved in this wedding set aside 15,000 pesos to pay for the flowers, which is 284 in U.S. dollars, but then found that they could buy a bag of onions for 8,000 pesos or just over 150 in U.S. dollars. So they actually saved money by going with the onions. Finally, they gave a practical reason for the choice in onions. 
Flowers wither away after a few days, and you can't eat them. And sure enough, they gave away the onions to the guests at the end of the wedding. If you are new to this podcast, here's a quick description of where we're at. This podcast started out as a general historical narrative, covering all 11 countries between India, China, and Australia. In case you don't consider yourself good at geography, the 11 countries are Myanmar, formerly Burma, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, Brunei, Indonesia, the Philippines, and East Timor. Those are the eleven, and no others. When I explain the podcast to the people I meet, it's amazing how many think Korea is included. No, I consider Korea part of Northeast Asia, along with Japan and the nearest parts of China and Siberia. Now the historical narrative finished with episode 119. At that point, I had brought the story of each country up to the year 2021. I'm waiting for some more news stories before I record an episode on events that have taken place since 2021. So far, the topics I have to talk about are the new president of the Philippines, the renewed civil war in Myanmar, and a Thai princess who was almost killed by a COVID vaccination. What will happen over there next? In the meantime, I am taking on what I call loose ends, subjects that you, the listeners, felt I didn't talk enough about in previous episodes. The first loose ends were the refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos that settled in the rest of the world during the late 20th century. And the story of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Now I am giving equal time to the islands of eastern Indonesia. After one listener suggested that in previous episodes, I spent too much time talking about the three big islands in western Indonesia, Borneo, Sumatra, and Java. Well, when I got into the research for eastern Indonesia, it turned out this would require not one episode, but a mini-series of episodes to give suitable coverage for this region. The first two episodes of this mini-series each covered a single island, First came an episode on Bali, then came an episode on Sulawesi. Now for today's episode, we are going to begin a tour of the Lesser Sundas. At this point, some of you may be asking, what's a Sunda? 
If you have listened to the previous episodes I did about Indonesia, you will have heard the word before. Sunda is a term that has been used extensively by geographers and scientists. Applied to anything having to do with the islands of Southeast Asia in general, and to West Java in particular. I couldn't find anything on the origin of the word. My guess is that Sunda comes from Suvarnadvipa, the ancient Sanskrit name given to Southeast Asia's islands, when ships from India began to explore here. To start with, the waterway between Java and Sumatra is called the Sunda Strait. The continental shelf between the islands is called the Sunda Shelf, and the deepest part of the Indian Ocean, located just south of Sumatra, is called the Sunda Trench. There was a prehistoric supervolcano, now extinct, on western Java that geologists call Mount Sunda, and during the Ice Ages, lowered sea levels turned the Sunda Shelf into dry land. That joined the islands of Southeast Asia to the mainland, as a subcontinent geologists now call Sunda Land. And geologists use the name Sunda Arc for the string of volcanoes that runs through the islands of Sumatra, Java, the Sunda Strait, and the Lesser Sunda Islands. But wait! There's more! There are people named Sunda. The Sunda are Indonesia's second largest ethnic group. The Javanese are the largest. Today there are 38 million Sundanese living on western Java, and 3 million on neighboring Sumatra. They have their own Sundanese language, and western Java was the location of the Sunda Kingdom, which existed from the 7th to the 16th century. I mentioned the Sunda Kingdom way back in episode 6 of this podcast because it was the last state to be conquered by the Majapahit Empire in the 14th century. The name also appears in Sunda Kalapa, the main port of the Sunda Kingdom. Later on, Sunda Kalapa would be called first Jakarta then Batavia, and finally Jakarta again. All right, so what does that have to do with today's episode? Well, to finish off our list of people, places, and things named Sunda, there are two major groups of islands within Indonesia, the Greater Sunda Islands and the Lesser Sunda Islands. You have already met the Greater Sunda Islands. Those are four of the big islands. Borneo, Sumatra, Java, and Sulawesi. I have already talked enough about them in previous episodes, so I hope to say no more here. The Lesser Sundas are a string of 975 small to medium-sized islands extending east of Java. According to Wikipedia, there are 15 airports in the Lesser Sundas, if you include Bali. So book your tickets 
and let's go there. The modern Indonesian name for the Lesser Sundas is Nusa Tenggara. This comes from two words in the old Javanese language, Nusa meaning island and Tenggara meaning southeast. So the Indonesian name literally means southeast islands because these islands are on the southeastern edge of the country, facing Australia. The modern Indonesian government divides the Lesser Sundas between four provinces, Bali, West Nusa Tenggara, East Nusa Tenggara, and Maluku. For Maluku, only the Barat Daya Islands count here. The rest of the islands in that province will be covered in another episode. The Lesser Sunda chain contains nine islands or archipelagos worth remembering, and we will concentrate our attention on them. Here they are, from west to east. Bali, Lombok, Sumbawa, Flores, Sumba, Timor, the Alor Archipelago, the Barat Daya Islands, and the Tanambar Islands. For this episode and those to follow, we are not going to have much of an historical narrative, the way we did for the episodes on Bali and Sulawesi. The main issue is that, over the course of history, not much has happened in this part of the world. To start with, compared with the rest of Indonesia, the Lesser Sundas are sparsely populated, with a bit more than 20 million people altogether. And nearly all of Indonesia's population growth happened in recent history. 200 years ago, before the Dutch introduced modern medicine, the Lesser Sundas probably had between 1 million and 2 million people. Keep in mind that 20 million is a small population compared with Indonesia's big islands, especially Java. And you don't hear about many events in places that are not crowded with people. That's why in the United States, you will hear more news stories from California and Texas than you will from North Dakota. And one million isn't that large when you're talking about Asian populations. As Zhou Enlai, the former Chinese premier, once put it, quote, in China, one million is not a large number. Unquote. Second, for most of history, each island was on its own. No important state got started here, nor did any important state rule the Lesser Sundas for long, before the 19th century. In fact, the only state that ruled all of the Lesser Sundas before modern times was the Java-based Majapahit Empire, 
in the late 14th century. For recent history, the Dutch ruled in the 19th and early 20th centuries, the Japanese ruled briefly during World War II, the Dutch came back after the war ended, and aside from East Timor, the present-day Indonesian government has ruled the whole area since 1949. For most of the islands we visit, I think we will just cover the events that happened there, like major volcanic eruptions, and point out interesting features, like the Komodo dragon. As I said before, we already covered Bali in episode 124, so we're not going to stop there in this episode. Instead, we will make our first stop at the next island to the east, Lombok. In the very first episode of the podcast, the introduction, I mentioned an imaginary line called the Wallace Line. To refresh your memory, the Wallace Line was drawn in 1859 by a British naturalist, Alfred Russell Wallace. In the previous episode, we noticed that the Wallace Line runs between Borneo and Sulawesi. And among Indonesia's southern islands, it runs between Bali and Lombok. Wallace noted that the wildlife on the east side of the line is quite different from wildlife on the west side of the line. And today's ecologists use the line to designate the boundary between the realms of Asian and Australian animals. Likewise, other scientists have noted that birds in the Philippines are different from the birds in eastern Indonesia. The main difference in wildlife is that the mammals indigenous to the islands west of the line are all placental mammals. East of the line you can also find placental mammals, like the Celebes crested macaque, but you will also find some marsupials the kind of mammals that dominated Australia before Europeans settled on that continent. So expect to meet some exotic animals on this journey. At 1,824 square miles, or 4,500 square kilometers, if you prefer the metric system, Lombok is one of the largest of the Lesser Sunda Islands. Lombok is separated from Bali by the Lombok Strait, and from the island of Sumbawa by the Alas Strait. It also has one of the largest populations in the Lesser Sundas, at 3.81 million people. The main city is Mataram, with 495,000 people, and as far as I can tell, the name has nothing to do with a kingdom called Mataram that used to exist on Java. 
The local economy is largely dependent on tourism, but because its western neighbor, Bali, gets so much attention, fewer tourists visit Lombok. Therefore, Lombok has been promoted as an unspoiled alternative to Bali. And when terrorists set off bombs on Bali in 2002 and 2005, tourism to both islands plummeted. It took until 2009 for tourism to return to pre-2000 levels. Today, Lombok offers hikes through mostly intact tropical forests. There are also plenty of attractive beaches, and the south shore of the island has many great spots for surfing. Whereas on Bali, the best time for surfing is during Indonesia's dry season, from April to October, the waves on Lombok are at their best during the rainy season, from November to March. For those of you with an Islamic persuasion, you might like to know that in 2019, Lombok received a score of 70 for halal tourism, the highest score for any tourist destination in Indonesia. Thus, according to the country's tourism ministry, Lombok has done more than the other tourist spots to keep their attractions halal or compatible with the teachings of Islam. To score well on the halal tourism rating system, an attraction must have the following. Number 1. Hotels that have no alcohol or gambling. And each room should have a Quran, prayer mats, and arrows pointing the direction to Mecca. Number 2. Halal transportation. That means cleanliness, non-alcoholic drinks, and publications considered agreeable with Islam. Number three, halal food is available. Number four, Islamic-themed tour packages. Number five, halal finances, meaning the hotels, restaurants, travel agencies, and airlines have to follow Islamic rules, like no charging of interest. The reason why Indonesia is rating tourist destinations this way is because the goal of the tourism ministry is to attract as many Muslim tourists as possible to those destinations. Lombok's main feature of interest is the volcanic complex near the center of the island. Today it is the site of Mount Rinjani, Indonesia's second tallest volcano, with an elevation of more than 12,000 feet above sea level. At the top of the mountain is an enormous caldera containing a lake, called Segara Anak, or Child of the Sea. The volcano is active, with the most recent eruption taking place in 2016. However, there used to be a larger volcano on this spot, called Mount Somalis. Centuries ago, Somalis erupted in one of the greatest eruptions in recorded history. The lake and Mount Rinjani come from what was left over after the eruption, 
We now know the eruption happened in the year 1257 A.D. because some people who witnessed the eruption wrote about it on dried palm leaves. Dried palm leaves were a common writing material in Southeast Asia before Southeast Asians learned about paper. And here the leaves were put together to form a document called the Babad Lombok. Likewise, we have contemporary documents from England, which report that the winters of 1257 and 1258 were unusually dark, cold, and dry, causing a catastrophic famine. Here is how the English chronicler, Matthew Paris, described this time. Quote, the north wind blew without intermission. A continued frost prevailed, accompanied by snow and such unendurable cold that it bound up the face of the earth, sorely afflicted the poor, suspended all cultivation, and killed the young of the cattle to such an extent that it seemed as if a general plague was raging among the sheep and lambs. End quote. In the 1990s, archaeologists discovered more than 10,000 skeletons in a mass burial pit in East London. At first, they assumed these bones came from victims of the Black Death, the terrible pandemic that would sweep across Europe in the mid-14th century. But now it appears more likely that this is the mass grave of those who died during the famine of 1257 and 1258. In more recent history, Southeast Asian volcanoes like Tambora and Krakatoa have spewed thousands of tons of ash and dust into the atmosphere. And that pollution spread around the world, blocking part of the sun's light, altering air circulation systems, creating brilliant red sunsets, and lowering temperatures everywhere. I personally remember Mount Pinatubo erupting in the Philippines in 1991, and as a result, 1992 was a cooler-than-average year. Therefore, we think that thousands of miles away in the tropics, Mount Somalis caused the famine that Europe experienced in the 13th century. If you regularly read, watch, or listen to the news, you know that climate change is a hot topic, and we mention it when discussing various events, from melting glaciers and icebergs to unexpected severe storms. Well, over the past few decades, we have also learned that climates are not constant. Temperatures have gone up and down over the ages. During the past 4,500 years, there have been four prolonged periods, each lasting more than a century, when temperatures around the world were a few degrees higher than they are today. And because most people were farmers before the Industrial Revolution, the warm periods were a blessing for them. Higher temperatures meant longer growing seasons and fewer killing frosts so it was easier to grow abundant harvests. 
The most recent warm time is called the Medieval Warming Period. It began around 800 A.D. and lasted until the 1200s. The Dark Ages ended in Europe as a result of this warm spell. And between the warm periods came colder times, when most people did not do as well. Crops failed and people starved. Such a cold spell happened after the medieval warming period, from 1300 to 1700. Sometimes we call this the Little Ice Age. Now it looks like the transition from the medieval warming period to the Little Ice Age was caused by the volcano on Lombok in 1257. So you can say that volcano changed the course of history. We will be able to go through Lombok's history quickly. To start with, we don't know much about what happened on the island before the 1257 eruption. And like the rest of Indonesia, it was ruled by the Majapahit Empire for a generation or so in the 14th century. Then Bali ruled the island briefly around 1550. Because of the Balinese conquest, Today, there are 300,000 Balinese on Lombok, making up 10 to 15 percent of the population. By 1600, the island's indigenous population, called Sasaks, were independent again, but divided into several minor states, and the princes of those states feuded constantly. This allowed Bali to conquer the western part of Lombok again while the Makassaris from Sulawesi and Sumbawa invaded eastern Lombok. The Balinese managed to conquer the whole island by 1750, but then the island split into four kingdoms, each ruled by a Balinese aristocrat. One of those states, Mataram, managed to bring the others under its control in 1838. On the west side of Lombok, lengthy contact between the Sasak and Balinese meant the two groups got along well, and there were often marriages between them. However, that wasn't the case in the east. There the Balinese manned forts to keep control and used the chief of each village as a tax collector. You should remember from the other episodes of this podcast that by the end of the 19th century, all of Southeast Asia except Siam had come under foreign domination from the Western nations. With Indonesia, the primary foreign invaders were the Dutch. Because the Netherlands is a small country, while Indonesia is a huge archipelago, of 17,000 islands, spread across an area the size of the continental United States, the Dutch conquest had to advance slowly, one island at a time, or in the case of the big islands, one piece of an island at a time. With Lombok, their opportunity came when a peasant rebellion broke out against the Balinese and the Sasaks invited the Dutch to take over. The initial invasion went well in June 1894, 
with the Balinese Raja quickly surrendering. But a counterattack by the younger princes against the Dutch army meant it took until 1895 to take the whole island. Afterwards, the Dutch were able to rule over a local population of half a million with a force of only 250 by cooperating with local aristocrats. Unlike most of Indonesia, today the residents of Lombok see the Dutch as liberators from the Balinese rulers they had previously. Podcast footnote From the royal palace of Lombok, the Dutch made off with a fabulous treasure hall in 1894. 507 pounds of gold, seven and a half tons of silver, and three chests of jewels. Part of this treasure, but not all of it, was returned to Indonesia in 1977. On Wikipedia, I saw a photo of a 75-carat diamond from Lombok that is still in a museum in Leiden. End podcast footnote. And that's Lombok. The island's history in the 20th and 21st centuries is the same as the history for all of Indonesia. Dutch rule until World War II, Japanese rule for three and a half years, a brief period where the Dutch regained control after the war, and from 1949 onward, the present-day Indonesian state. Of course, I have already covered all this in previous episodes. Originally, my plan was to cover all of the Lesser Sundas in one episode, but now I can see that if I do even two of the main islands, this episode will last for more than an hour, and it will take much longer for me to do the research and record it. Therefore, I will break off here, after just doing Lombok. Join me next time as we continue our journey eastward by visiting the next island in the Lesser Sunda chain, Sumbawa. Most podcasts do not last as long as this one has. This podcast has been active for nearly seven years, thanks to determination on my part and your willingness to support it. If you appreciate this podcast and would like to support it, the easiest way to do so is by spreading the word about it. Tell your family, your friends, and anyone you know who is interested in history. And if you can financially support the podcast, you can really make a difference with a donation. For a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. To do that, go to the Blueberry.com page that hosts this show and click on the link. 
it will either be a gold button or a text link that says, Support this podcast. Now I know that PayPal does not work everywhere. I have seen your messages that say PayPal does not accept currency from Taiwan, Singapore, or Malaysia. Rest assured, I have started looking into alternatives to PayPal for you. Or click on the link to Patreon if you want to become a patron and make a small donation each month. Either way, thank you for your support. Long-time listeners know I have created the Podcast Hall of Fame page to give recognition to the donors by putting their first names on it. And I have posted links to that page from Blueberry.com and the podcast's Facebook page. In addition, if you donate in more than one year, a special icon featuring something associated with Southeast Asia is put next to your name to mark your exalted status. Those who donate in two different years get the coveted water buffalo icon, also known as Walter the Water Buffalo. Being a thoroughly useful farm animal, the water buffalo is a common sight all over Southeast Asia. I even have a photo from the Philippines where a farmer used a cart pulled by a water buffalo to take his family to the drive through lane of a fast food restaurant. Those who donate in three years get the ever-popular Shui Dagon Pagoda icon, which represents the most famous building in Myanmar. How famous is it? Well, when the Burmese government moved the nation's capital from Yangon to Naypyidaw, they felt compelled to build a full-sized copy of the Shui Dagon in the new city. And that's not all. Those who donate for four years get the outrageous Merlion icon next to their names. If you have visited Singapore, you know the Merlion is that city-state's national symbol. In 2022, the outrageous Merlion was the highest award I gave to donors, but not anymore. Now we have two donors who have given for five years in a row, Louis C. and Yauka C. To both of you, I say, thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing your part to keep the lights on here. I had to think for a little while about what icon would be appropriate here, and then the current subject matter decided it. Because this episode and the next one talk about the awesome power of volcanoes, both of you will be honored with an awesome volcano icon. In Southeast Asia, volcanoes are mainly found in Indonesia and the Philippines, but there are also a few in the mainland countries. So the volcano is an appropriate symbol for the whole region. Congratulations to both of you! Now we will watch to see who else follows the example you set. And that's all for today. Like I've been saying, thank you for listening, 
and come back when the monsoon winds are blowing right.